This week marks the debut of one of the most anticipated films of the year. Without the Black Panther, Wakanda will fall. Oh, come on. Who am I kidding? For nerds like myself, the premiere of Marvel's Black Panther 2 Wakanda Forever might just be the biggest day of the year, period. Back in 2018, when the first Black Panther film came out, director Ryan Coogler's vision for the fictional African nation of Wakanda just rewrote the playbook for what was happening on screens. And a part of that vision is how the movie looks. There's a look that's been established in the comic. You want to honor it, but you also want to look to honor what's in the movie and the story in the movie and how the characters develop. Today, we're going to peel back the curtain on how worlds like Wakanda are created for movies. This is Stateside. I'm April Bear. My guest, concept artist Tim Flattery, has had a hand in some of the most iconic imagined worlds that you've seen in movies the past few years, including Black Panther 2. He's envisioned tech for dozens of films, including Marvel properties like Captain Marvel, Captain America, Winter Soldier, Guardians of the Galaxy 2, and a lot of other films outside of the MCU. Dune, The Hunger Games, Saving Private Ryan, Men in Black, and some films from the Star Trek and Batman franchises. Perhaps most famously, he designed the iconic Infinity Gauntlet for Avengers Infinity War. All this while spending his days mentoring younger artists at Detroit's College for Creative Studies. Tim has been deep into the world of comic books since childhood, so I wanted to know what some of those early influences were for him. I would say that the um, characters that spoke to me most when I was a kid, believe it or not, was the Vision from uh, the MC universe, um, as well as Spider-Man. And from the DC, it, it was it was Superman and Batman, typically. Um, I love their backstory. And um, I enjoyed both uh, both universes uh, equally. I'm so interested to hear you say uh, the vision. I mean, until recently, he was not, you know, he was not necessarily, uh, you know, one of the one of the, you know, marquee, I guess, heroes in in the Marvel comic book universe. What was it that drew you about him? Well, because it it was actually uh, the vision and the specter as well, um, because neither one of them were the typical hero and and i didn't recognize this at 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 the time as a kid it was just in just sort of ingrained in me for some other reason but they weren't your typical hero that was an alien with superpower or fell into an accident um and achieved superpower it was um something part of their being and they and it was also they thought differently and they interacted differently and and some for some reason, and I can't explain it, those characters spoke to me more than, say, an an Iron Man or, um, or a, or even a Batman. Yeah. Um, as I got older, I appreciated the struggle with some of the alter egos of like Tony Stark, for instance. I as I got older, I appreciated the struggle and the realism of his alcoholism. And overcoming that and battling that um, and things like that. But in my younger years, in my grade school years, it was more um, the former. So were there artists maybe in, in some of those comics who influenced your design aesthetic? I, I'm, I'm guessing John Buscema of The Vision, like he, that was that was who I was going to guess 
was maybe somebody that you'd enjoyed. He did a really a really iconic run of Vision. But what, who were the who were the artists who really turned you on early? You hit him on the head. I mean, obviously Jack Kirby um, as well. But in regards to me transitioning into becoming an effective artist um, and an effective storyteller, Buscema, his his book that him and Stan Lee did called How to Draw Comics the Marvel Way taught me so much in regards to storytelling, composition, and then foundations of drawing as well. Uh, that led me to CCS and developing those skills further. And believe it or not, I still use that book today. It's wow. like lifelong. So it's um, it's like written for seventh graders, but it's appropriate for adults um, in regards to what it what it teaches. Maybe this is a good moment for us to explain the relationship between what you do, concept art, and what designers show the audience in terms of digital visual effects, costuming, and props. Can you can you talk about where you come in to the process? Yeah, it it's um it's different on on every movie. Um, so right now, uh, I'm currently working on a reimagining of the Green Hornet, and. The script is not even halfway done. Uh, the director is uh, and the writer are in the middle of writing the script, but they involved myself and Constantine Circus doing character designs. Um, and I'm working on the Black Beauty to, uh, early in the process to collaborate back and forth with the director, which will affect what what they write, but also affects how we design. And so in this development process, it's very blue sky, um, very conceptual. And we will explore all avenues and how we serve the story. In other films, when I'm brought on right in pre-production, it's a little more mechanical where it's a direct interpretation of the script and what's written, and then executing the director's vision and the production designer's vision based on um, overall look, theme that, um, that the movie has been established and I design within that within that theme. Right. Well, let's take an example, uh, the Infinity Gauntlet. There was a comic book image in Marvel Comics uh, Infinity War series. What has to happen to get to get that into the film? Like what what role does the concept art play in a situation like that where th- there's there's sort of a vision for for what this thing is and what it's needed for? Yeah, it serves the visual effects part, because obviously Thanos is three times the size of, you know, a human. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also was, it was required to be built practically too. So there was an armor hired that does um, beautiful metalwork, suits of armor that built it um, practically. To answer your question, th- there's a lot of phases through it and a lot of hands that touch on something as iconic as that. Because there's a look that's been established in the comic. You want to honor it, but you also want to look to honor the what's in the movie and the story in the movie and how the characters develop. So Marvel has a visual development team that will take uh, passes on a lot of this stuff. Um, and then as things develop, um, in this case, the Infinity Gauntlet, then it ended up in my lap after, you know, one or two people had already, um, touched on it and from there it's dialing out hey what do the infinity stones exactly look like you know when you think of a 
an infinity stone, like in a comic, they're perfectly cut and they're geometric in their language. And we decided to take it in a different direction where they were raw stone. Um, the details of the gauntlet, the filigree, um, you know, how it articulates, how it bends, how it moves, things like that. Those are the things that then I take in consideration for the final passes of it. Textures are a big deal at this phase too. The amount of grit and dirt on it, because we're you know we're talking 8K, and so we'll spend a month just dealing with how much dirt is on it. So. <laughs> These things matter to digital effects people too. Uh, Tim, I know that you've done some work, as I mentioned, on uh, Ryan Coogler's Black Panther 2: Wakanda Forever. This film has been kept so tightly under wraps. Is there anything you can tell us about what you've been working on or what you were asked to do or even just what Ryan Coogler's process was for this very, very highly anticipated film? Oh, man. Um, it, you you hit the nail on the head again. April, Marvel is, they're a vault um, <laughs> in regards to their... Uh, their NDAs and their their secrecy, because as you know, there's long range plans for the Marvel Universe, um, and each one of their films and now even their streaming shows play into that long long term plan. I can say that the vision of the movie, because it's the same director, same production designer, was um, it, in harmony with the first movie. So, man, does it look good! I I was responsible for quite a bit of the hardware that you'll see in the movie um, along with probably, um, Oh my gosh, maybe six other concept designers that worked on it as well. That's probably about as far as I can take it until the movie's released. And then I can speak specifically to what I designed. Sure. Um, part of what made the original film so special was Ryan Coogler's process, the Afrofuturist design for the nation of Wakanda, a country uninterrupted by colonialism. And Coogler and his art, his art director, Hannah Beachler, started the whole process by creating a sort of a Bible, you know, a manual for Wakanda's visual aesthetic and its language and things that, that might be important. I mean, can you tell us, was that a part of the process this time as well? Absolutely. The design process, language, and um, concept carried over into the second movie. And then what was added to it, and what I can say is, so we know now that the trailers are out, that Namor, the Submariner, is in this film. And um, there was a new language that needed to be conceptualized and introduced in regards to Namor's world which was um, based on an Aztec type of language that was reimagined for uh, his culture. We need to take a break. More in just a minute. Support for Michigan Public's stateside podcast comes from Lake Trust Credit Union, working to empower financial well-being for Michigan consumers, businesses, and communities. Committed to financial solutions and advice to support people and families. More information at laketrust.org. Support for the stateside podcast comes from Kalamazoo College, offering a personalized education that combines critical thinking, curiosity, and creativity. Committed to preparing students for meaningful careers that make a positive impact on the world. More at kzoo.edu.
You've worked on so many projects that people would recognize, especially as fans of the genre. But what would you say are some of the favorite projects that you've that you've worked on? One is um, a movie that uh, I did with Steven Soderbergh called Solaris, and it was uh, it was based off of uh, a Russian film. Um, and it was super gratifying for me design-wise and also just in its execution, although it wasn't a, a very well-known film. And I always look back on that in regards to design satisfaction as something that was really satisfying. Um, I saw that film. It starred George Clooney and I want to say Natasha McElhone. Correct. About an astronaut who is on a, a, a space base, you know, in, in something like the International Space Station. And s some unexplained things start happening. The aesthetic was beautiful on that film. It was very, it felt very influenced by Stanley Kubrick's 2001 um, what was so satisfying about it? Was it the creative control or just kind of working within that kind of a universe? Um, both. The, there were things that I had to solve that were convincing in regards to long-range space travel that, you know, researching out what an ion generator does and what its purpose is in long range space travel and its efficiency um, in deep, deep space and how that affects a long range ship and what it looks like and its technology. Um, down to the main character, George Clooney, as you mentioned, this is a, this is a psychiatrist that we on earth that had to send out to Solaris to find out what was going on because in the space station, people were dying due to some sort of anomaly. And we were thinking it was because of a, a mental breakdown. And that had to get taken in consideration to what Solaris looked like, because I also um, had a big hand in designing what was the planet of Solaris, but it turns out it was more of an entity, um, along with the space station itself. So all those things combined were like a super challenge, super conceptual, but grounded in reality of what projections um, are at the time, what the projections for space travel were to be and incorporating that technology into my concepts was, it was just awesome. And then you have Steven Soderbergh, who is a, a, an amazing collaborator and the production designer, Phil Messina, um, who just has a great eye as well. It was just, it was an amazing project. It was like one of a kind. I didn't mean to interrupt you. What was the second favorite that you were going to mention? The other, I didn't, didn't fully realize at the time, but now having it is part of my portfolio, my career is I'm very thankful for, which is to be um, a designer and builder and supervisor of one of the Batmobiles. Um I knew at the time that I was designing a new character and a, and it was an icon and I, it carried a lot of responsibility to it. But I was also in my late 20s and naive in some ways to the responsibility of it. Um, not now. And I look back on those times, what it took to get that done and how good the design is because it's so unique. Um, that's number two for sure. Like I just, I'm really thankful that I had the opportunity to do a Batmobile. Any geek would. 
Um, you've been instrumental in bringing CCS's programs of design into this digital design era. There's got to be so much that's different from the process than when you got started. I mean, do students still begin at the level of hand-drawn images? Yeah, they. I have um, – so for concept design, there are specific portfolio requirements to get into the concept program, and generally students submit digitally. For portfolio requirements in general for the college, some departments require drawing and others don't. And those are executed in in a majority of cases through traditional media. Um, some some are digital as well, mixed in there. And to your point, yes, I started my career when I graduated from CCS in 1987, and have seen the di- digital revolution and continuing to um, happen now with AI. Um, and having to pivot, I I. I came into my career with markers and gouache paint, and that's how I executed my concepts. Uh, The Adobe Suite came around, had to adjust to that. 3D modeling came around, had to adjust to that. These are just expected of us. Um, And they've all just become uh, tools to how I articulate my ideas and my designs, and I believe AI will serve the same purpose. What do you tell your students about the relationship between where they live, where they're from, and the industry capitals today of New York and L.A. and Atlanta? I, I, we, so at CCS, I mean, you know, professional development is part of their education here. And within that professional development, they're taught how to network and have a presence, whether it's online, on things like ArtStation, um, social media presence, and um, other platforms, that I tell them you're in, a, you're in an era that is um, ripe for opportunity. And location isn't as important in today's world as it used to be You know, 20 years ago where you had to be in LA, let's say for entertainment. So many people are working remotely now. The film industry has adjusted its, you know, locations based on tax, you know, rebates that they're receiving from states like Georgia or Vancouver or New Mexico, New Orleans, uh, places like that. So many, many people are working remotely. I mean, I'm, I have, I've been remote on every the last twenty movies I've worked on. That's why I'm, you know. In Detroit and love being back. Right. Um, so students, yeah, they they have this wonderful opportunity where if they can get their portfolio out there, um, they're they have the opportunity to be able to work remotely. But their geography of being in Detroit isn't isn't a, um, you know a detriment. Do you think though that? In the in the period when people are becoming known in the industry, you know, before, I mean, you're somebody who has a track record and name and an identifiable style. Do you think that it, it's still advantageous to get in front of human beings in the course of, of building one's own brand? Yeah, there's 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 advantages to it. It depends on um, what area of the industry. If we're talking about the entertainment industry, 
whether you're going into visual development for feature animation or um, whether you're going into live action, whether you're going into game uh, game design and, and concept design within game design. The, the overall answer to your question is if you establish a footprint online, um, people will look. You're going to get noticed. And there are platforms that allow that to happen at um, an accelerated speed that could never happen before. And that will lead to whether or not you have to be there personally or in the door. It, it, it just like, it opens the doors that could never have been opened before. Um, so in general, your, your online presence will open doors and whether or not you have to be somewhere um would be answered afterwards, but in general, no. Like it, it, right now, the majority of people are working remotely, even in even in the game pipeline. Mm-hmm. They they'll get on the Discord channel, they'll get on um, their own private um, video channel for a couple hours a day, um, go over stuff, and everyone just sort of works while the channel's live. Uh, that's one way. Yeah, you know, I once heard I once heard a UX designer say she was exhausted at the age of forty learning new software every four or five years for the same job she'd been doing her whole life. Does that ever, does that ever come up for you? It does. And the way I avoid the exhaustion is I know that I'll never keep up (laughs) Um, because all I can do is to continue to pivot, um, absorb, learn, and strategize because there's always a better software that's just around the corner that does this one other thing differently that might be more appropriate. And you'll drive yourself crazy, (laughs) you know, trying to adapt everything. So um, I just, I keep an open mind to pivoting and strategizing what is most appropriate and what's most beneficial for student experience. Tim Flattery is provost at College for Creative Studies in Detroit. You can also see some of his concept artwork come to fruition in Black Panther 2, Wakanda Forever. And maybe someday he'll even be able to talk to us about it. (laughs) Tim Flattery, thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure talking to you. It's been my pleasure as well, April. Thank you for having me. And that's the Stateside Podcast for today. I'm April Baer. You can find full Stateside episodes always at michiganradio.org. Today's podcast was produced by Rachel Ishikawa. Other producers on our show are Mike Blank, Ronia Kabansag, Mercedes Mejia, and April Van Buren. Our pod was edited by Mercedes today. Our executive producer is Laura Weber-Davis. Music for the podcast comes from Blue Dot Sessions. Thank you for listening, and thank you so much for being with us all through election season. We'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Rebecca Williams. I'm Lester Graham. We've been working on a big project about Great Lakes birds called the Bird Connection. It will look at ducks and trumpeter swans. Egrets and herons. And piping plovers. Yes! We'll discuss what we've discovered at a Michigan Public Issues and Ale event. Including how some problems for birds are problems for people. It's at Arbor Brewing Company in Ypsilanti the evening of May 21st at 7. You can register at michiganpublic.org.